I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Novels can open a space, for instance, in which opposing ideas are valid at the same time, in which reality is considered in a complex way. What's the line between fact and fiction? Can a novel flirt between both? Novels are perhaps the most adaptable of all literary forms, but are they adaptable enough to deal with facts? There are certain rules and constraints that come with writing a piece of non-fiction. But in a novel, you don't have to conform. You are free to play with the facts. But far from undermining the truth behind those facts, this can actually be a way of bringing them into focus more clearly, giving your reader a new understanding of the events that unfolded. Just like one of our previous guests, Sophie Haydock, as she did with Egon Schiele's Muses in her novel The Flames, at Series 4, Episode 7, if you're interested. Retrospective, the new novel from Juan Gabriel Vasquez could be described as a non-fiction novel. It charts the barely fictionalised and extraordinary life of the Colombian film director Sergio Cabrera. Juan is widely heralded as one of the world's greatest living novelists, and so I am delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1. The Myths That Shape Our Lives Retrospective is a politically charged novel. Let me set the scene. It's October 2016, and filmmaker Sergio Cabrera is attending a retrospective of his films in Barcelona. It's a difficult time for him. His father has just died, his marriage is in crisis, and Colombia has rejected peace agreements that might have ended more than 50 years of war in his country. Over the course of a few turbulent and intense days, Sergio recalls the events that marked the family's life, and especially his father's, his sister Marianella's, and indeed his own. From the Spanish Civil War to the exile of his Republican family in Latin America, and from the Cultural Revolution in China to the guerrilla movements of the 1960s Latin America, not only do we discover a series of adventures extraordinary by any standards, but also a devastating portrait of the forces that for half a century turned the world upside down and created the world we now inhabit. Juan came to write Retrospective after learning about Cabrera's life over many years. He explains how they first met. So we met around 2002. I had just published a book of stories, Lover's on All Saints Day, or, or the All Saints Day Lovers, as it is originally titled in the UK. And uh, he was a famous filmmaker. He was um, the author of one of the most beloved Colombian films of the 20th century, The Tragedy of the Snail. And so we met, we exchanged ideas, we slowly became friends, but he's a very shy guy. So I never got to really know the features behind his public persona other than what was more or less public knowledge that he came from a family of actors that his father was spanish and that he had always been very publicly left-wing participated in politics in the 90s etc uh, when we both came back to colombia after living abroad this was 2012, we became friends. We started having these conversations in which he would stop a casual dinner in which we were talking about things. And he would say, well, that reminds me of the time when I was a red guard in Mao's China. So 
immediately we all realized that our lives were uninteresting compared to his and we wanted to know more and uh, slowly over uh, a couple of years as our friendship grew closer i started thinking that his life was not only adventurous and interesting and unusual and exotic in a sense but that it told an important story that the story this life told was pertinent for us as Colombians trying to come to terms with the history of internal conflict and and civil strife but also wider than that this story spoke about Latin America it spoke about the 20th century our relationship with the ideas that have have shaped politically the 20th century all over the world. And so I started thinking about doing something with that because Sergio, in a sense, embodied what I have always pursued in my fiction, which is the space in which the public meets the private, the space in which politics become intimate or our private lives, our intimate lives are shaped by the forces of history and politics. And I suggested to him that we should sit down with with the intention of recording the sessions and doing something with it. The long story is that we started doing this, and then out of nowhere, a Chinese film producer suggests to Sergio that he should write a movie about his experience in China. And he said to me, since we're at it, why don't you write the argument for the film? Why don't you imagine a character loosely based on our notes on China, and we try to make a film. And so I do that. I imagine a story. This is 2014. I imagine a story in which a Colombian soap opera director travels to China as a guest of a festival. And while he is in China, he receives the news that his father has died back in Colombia, and he refuses to go to the burial. This was my fiction. This was my invention. Two years later, Sergio is in Lisbon, about to attend a retrospective of his own work, and he receives the news from Colombia that his father has just died, and he refuses to go to the burial. He wrote to me almost in panic, saying, I have just imitated what you imagined two years ago. What does that mean? And I thought to myself, what this means is that I have a novel to write because you can only, only a novel can get to the bottom of something as what just happened. I think only a novel has the time required to explore the issues that you, that you write about. And, and you are right. I, I, and I've noticed this from your other works. You have a fascination, if not an obsession with the collision of private and public. And, and it comes through hugely. The way you've written the book, I'd love to talk about the structure of the book because firstly what a life he has led it's an yeah. extraordinary account of a life and the influences that shape it i would imagine that had you done this in chronological order you would have ended up with a very different novel and what i particularly enjoyed about it is that i'm seeing characters experience things without the sight of what I know they already experience in their future and the people that they become because of their lived experiences. But the characters don't yet know that. And to see them make decisions 
that can only be informed by what they know, not what happens next, is really quite interesting. Was that 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 was clearly a deliberate attack? Was if we do this chronologically, it will be a very different novel. Is that fair? Yes, yes. In fact, if we do this chronologically, it might have just been a biography, which was the other temptation that I had. I had I had three possibilities when when writing this book. One was a biography, but then I started realizing that Sergio's life could not be understood only through the exploration of his own biography, but that it was shaped by people who had come before. Uh, he is one of the great examples of what Thomas Mann called the myths that shape our lives. We take a decision under the illusion that we are taking this decision by ourselves. But if we had enough insight about our own selves, we would realize that there are other people in the room taking this decision with us. Our ancestors, the, um, in the case of Sergio, it became evident for me that the moment he took the decision to join the Colombian guerrillas in 1969, out of this idea of bringing forth the new world, of being a, a, a hero in his own life, he was not taking that decision by himself. There was the ghost of a great uncle who had been a hero of the Spanish Civil War, putting pressure on him to make of his life something special. There was the fact that his father had gone hungry during his uh, adolescence because he was a Spanish exile uh, in very difficult situations after the Spanish Civil War. So a, a family history and a family mythology contributed to taking this decision. This was the big argument for me to use the form of the novel that can go to the past and, and trace and identify things that, that are not factual, that cannot be discussed in rational terms because they belong to another level of our behavior. And the other thing, formally, this about structure, and it's very interesting what you say, but formally also the voice was very important for me to get right. I had the temptation of writing this novel using the strategies of books that I love by writers that I love, like Javier Cercas in Spain or Emmanuel Carrère in France. These are people who write about, they put themselves in the book. So Javier Cercas is a character in the book discovering the story that Javier Cercas is writing about. And it was, it was a possibility that I had until I realized that one of the most important things about this book was that I disappear, that I disappear so that my personal opinions, my personal convictions, political or emotional or moral, did not get in the way. Because it's such a complicated book from the point of view of politics, I had to disappear to open this space in which the reader would be forced not to condemn or absolve the characters, not to judge them constantly, but to try to understand them. And to uh, to achieve this, I had to turn the book into a sort of 19th century realistic narrative, very classical in a way, and um, try to use this third person that doesn't judge, that looks at the world from the character's eyes so that the reader would come to the wrong conclusions. Chapter two, the story the facts don't tell. 
From the political ideologies we live under to the parents and role models in our life, there are forces beyond free will that govern the way we act. We are conditioned by the world around us. And this realisation is what Sergio comes to in the book. As he looks back on his life, he sees that the choices and decisions he's made have been shaped by outside forces, and the freedom he believes he's enjoyed and his own free will begin to appear as an illusion. And this process of realisation made me feel a great deal of sympathy for Sergio as I reflected on my own choices and what has conditioned me. The fascinating thing for me writing this book is that Sergio presented me with his life story through several years and many, many hours of conversation. But then I, my task as a novelist, was to carry out that interpretation that you have just mentioned. In a sense, this is my reading of Sergio's life. This is this is what I did as a novelist, and this is the reason I call this book a novel, because I was presented with a series of facts, and it was my obligation to put them in order, to extract meaning from them, to interpret them, to try to get to the bottom of them, and try to tell, tell the story that they are not telling. I had a pact with Sergio that he would tell me all, all his stories, then I would write my novel, and he would have the final decision on what to leave, uh, what to eliminate. I wanted to give them that unusually for a writer, because these are sensitive subjects in Colombia, and uh, I wouldn't want him to, to, you know, to regret having told me any story. And when he, he read the manuscript, I found that he was understanding things about his own life that he had never thought before. Wow. Uh, for instance, he was he was discovering things about uh, the life of his sister in communist China, in the Colombian guerrilla, things he didn't know about because there was such a taboo of silence that fell on the family after the events were finished, after they had left the guerrilla under very traumatic circumstances, wounded, not only physically, but emotionally wounded and so they never talked about this and there were areas of darkness in their own lives places where they didn't know what had happened and that they were learning about in my book the associations my novel does the interpretation it does of its characters lives gave these real characters insights into their own lives and i think this is one of the great privileges that i've have had as a novelist i would love to talk about the sections set in china they really resonated with me in fact everything resonated with me but there's something about the precociousness of this child living under the red flag and and sort of saying you know it's not my flag but it has become my flag etc but i don't know how living under mao's china was the right upbringing or preparation to go back home to be a, a, a revolutionary. But that's that's what happened. What I found most extraordinary is that I was sent this book in September and so read it in the early autumn. And I had, I think, finished it a couple of weeks before this happened. But earlier this month, we're recording this in late November, earlier this month, Cabrera has become the official Colombian ambassador to the People's Republic of China. Yeah. which is an extraordinary thing to occur and must show in some way the trust that China have in him, given 
his experiences of making films there, given everything that he has done. That really was bizarre. Did you? Did, how did you react when you, when you heard that news? Did you know it was coming? Well, Sergio called me in the summer. Right. It was August. And he said, I need to talk to you. There's a new ending for your book. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what is it? He said, uh, they, has, they have just offered me, President Petro has just offered me the embassy in China. Do you think I should accept? He has a small girl. He's, he has a 12-year-old daughter. It involves a lot of things, this, this big movement. But I said, of course, you should. Who better to be an ambassador in China than somebody who genuinely speaks the language? And I'm not, I mean, not only words. He speaks perfect Mandarin. But it's beyond that. He speaks, he, he knows what we may call the soul of, of the country. He understands the country better than anybody we could imagine. But it, it felt strange. It did feel strange after the book had been read in Colombia. It was a part of Colombian conversations about many things, about the, the current political situation, about the negotiation process, the peace negotiations that have been the main part of our Colombian conversation in the last few years between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas. The negotiations, as our listeners may know, that were rejected in a referendum in 2016, then approved then reformed, then approved by Congress. And this is what we're trying to implement now as a way to end a 50-year-old war. Um, so in this context, the book was part of the conversation. And then comes this decision by the new government uh, of getting the character from a novel and making him ambassador to China. It was, it was unheard of. Interesting, fascinating. But also, I think it... it it speaks to a new relationship that Sergio has now with his life. He very generously blames the book. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the book is guilty of, of this wonderful turn of events, but I do think this means we are started to look at the Colombian past and at the participation of certain human beings in the Colombian past in a different way. And that's a good thing. Chapter three, our desire for certainties. As I mentioned earlier, novels are flexible, and in a novel you have time. Time to explore subjects in a way that isn't possible in this fast-paced world governed by constantly churning daily news agendas. In the real world, we don't have time for considered debate in political reporting, nor indeed in politics. Instead, politics has become about how people feel. Because if we can control how people feel, we can get them to do or perhaps vote in whatever way we want. And this is why novels are exactly the right place for facts. Listening to you, I, I, I remember what happened during the Colombian referendum when it was finally rejected by the, the, the peace uh, negotiations, when the peace agreements were rejected by the people. And after that, we learned that the opposition to the agreements had carried out a very intelligent smear campaign against the agreements with misinformation, with outright lies, confusing people. And there was this official who, after the fact, came out and said, very proud of himself, that they had decided that they should stop discussing the agreements 
and only focus on emotions so that the people, his words, the people went to vote in anger, is what he said. He used a Colombian term, but this was the idea, to use anger and indignation to make people go vote in that state of mind. This is what we have been witnessing all over the world. And I've spoken again and again about the strange coincidence that the Colombian referendum, the Brexit referendum, the election of Donald Trump, the Catalan referendum, all happened in 2016. We are participants in a new way of understanding politics, a new way of understanding the, the you know, civil discourse and our conversations as citizens under new ways of manipulating emotion and opinion. And I think that's this is serious. This is something that we should really think about. And I also think it cements the importance of the novel as an art form in perhaps allowing for considered debate that doesn't happen elsewhere, because you've taken this extraordinary four decade span and made me think about it at a macro level in terms of why the world is the way the world is right now, but also at a human level, the impact that it has on ordinary people. And I think that really is is its greatest achievement is the ability to really focus in on that collision that we talked about in terms of these macro forces that shape individual lives and they have such powerful impacts that in a way the novel needs to continue to exist because it is perhaps one of the few art forms in which truth can really be debated that's certainly how I, I mean i would say that because this is a podcast for for writers but i think you know it, it really for me cements the importance of art and the medium of the novel i do believe that that the novel is a space when we get where we get to do things that we cannot do elsewhere in a way the reason i write i write novels for instance about these this big chunk of the political 20th century or in another novel of mine, uh, The Drug Wars, The Sound of Things Falling, or Political Murders in another novel called The Shape of the Ruins. These are things that have been told over and over again in Colombian journalism, very well too, or in historiography. Why write novels about them? My answer is that the only justification for me to write a novel about these things is to try to say things that we don't find in journalism or in history. The worst sin for me as a novelist is redundancy. What I don't want to do is to write something to tell the readers something that they can already find somewhere else. We have great journalists, great historians in Colombia, in, in Latin America, in the 20th century, all over the world, journalists about who have written and historians who have written about communist China. But I'd write this book because I think novels do something else. They can open a space, for instance, in which opposing ideas are valid at the same time, in which reality is considered in a complex way through the opposing convictions of individuals, and in which certain questions are being put center stage for us to consider. I think this is one I write political columns, I try to engage in the, in the public conversation in my country, but I don't think there are two more disparate ways of looking at the world than the columnist mode and the novelist mode. Because we write journalism from certainties. We write journalism because we think we know things in terms of a political columnist. 
we have certain convictions and we want to convince other people. Whereas novels for me are always written from the opposite stance. We, I write novels because I don't know things, because I have uncertainties, because I have doubts, because I have questions. And this is why I think novels turn to, novels become this space in which we suspend our constant desire for certainties and we accept that the that human beings such as Sergio, such as his sister Marianela, are incredibly ambiguous and contradictory and difficult to understand. And only in novels can we, I think, have that luxury. I don't mean to sound like a fundamentalist of, of fiction, but it, you know, it's I do believe that history journalism do many things better than the novel. But there are things novels do that cannot be found anywhere else. And this is the ultimate justification for writing them and reading them. Well, I am a card-carrying writing fundamentalist, so you won't get any disagreement from me, Juan, on that. But it's almost as if I often, people say, you know, why do you write? I don't, I never know how to answer that question because honestly, the real answer is because I don't know anything else. I don't know, I, I can't live with not doing it. And I think you said this, you said you should only write if to not write would make you unhappy. And I completely agree with that. You know, the and, and the problem is, is that when you wake up one day and you realize that this is what you want to do, that's almost the worst thing that can happen to you, because it means you sign up for everything that comes with this, because this stuff is is hard. But I think we do have a huge responsibility to tell stories that we don't understand, because that is the only way we will understand them. Yes. Yes, I do agree with that. And, and I come from a tradition the Latin American tradition that thinks for for whatever reason that novels have an impact in the social, maybe in the social conversation or maybe in our appraisal of our own histories. And novels are a place in which we dispute the story that is being told to us by the people who have the power of, of telling it. I think we, all, all of us in any society, this is no different from what happens in the UK or in France or in New Zealand or in South Africa. As societies, we are always presented with a story of our present time, but particularly of our past time. The narrator of this story we can call power. It's sometimes the state, it's sometimes a church, religion, but there is a narrative of what we are that is being presented to us and maybe imposed on us. Political power is nothing else but the power to impose a story on a society. Where do we get to rebel against the story? Where do we get to dissent? Where do we raise our hands and, and, and say, this is not how it happened, or this doesn't represent me, or things are more complicated, or whatever kind of dissent you have in mind? I think it's, among other places, in fiction. Uh, fiction is the place where private, intimate stories circulate, and they begin creating a story about a society, about its history, its past, but also its present, its social present, that almost always contradicts what we may call the, the official story that is being told. I know of no great novel that supports prevalent values in a society. Novels always are always rebellious in that sense. They go against the grain. They... Uh, they are party spoilers, as Vargas Llosa used to say, and this is something that I that is dear to me. This idea that 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 novels can be this place where we, private citizens, we dissent 
from the story that is being presented to us by that thing we may call power. I certainly think we should have a banner that says long live the party spoiler um, because it is so important. Juan, you've been doing a huge amount of press here in the UK. You've also been on the festival circuit. You're in Hay this weekend, as you told me earlier. Have you had the chance to reflect on what lies ahead? Because this book was a very long time in the making. It's an extraordinary achievement. But as a writer, we're always on to the next thing. So what are you working on at the moment? During this whole year, I've been concentrating on these lectures that I have just finished in Oxford called the Widenfield Lectures, which are um, are kind of an institution and a lovely institution. They have been given in the past by people I admire, I deeply admire, people who have been important for me, like, I don't know, Vargas Llosa, and more recently, Javier Cercas, uh, who is a colleague that I admire. And there are writers that I appreciate that have been giving these lectures. Ali Smith is one of them. George Steiner in the 90s. So it's it's an, an institution that I appreciate. And so I've been giving these lectures about many of the things that we have been talking about. Why fiction? Why do we write fiction? Why do we read fiction? Why does it feel for some of us that fiction is being pushed, I think, to the margins of our uh, mentality? What does fiction do that cannot be found anywhere else in all the modes, the narrative modes that we have come up as human beings to tell the story of our lives. All these are the questions that I have been trying to discuss in these lectures. So I've been concentrating on that. And now it's time to move to the next novel, which of course is already there. It has been there for 10 years because I work in a very uneconomical way. I take a long, long, long time to think about the stories before sitting down to write them. So when I finish a book, I have already two or three obsessions turning around and begging for for space in in writing. They're there. They they are as far as I can tell political also deeply personal. One of them involves the Korean War to which Colombia sends a battalion for reasons that I don't understand and another one is about a couple of artists female sculptors in Colombia who have who are real people again and whose art has been a way of exploring political violence in Colombia and so all the this crossroads between private lives artistic achievements uh, political conflict i think this is this is what i've been trying to explore and the next the following books i think will try to dig deeper into those things well, we wish you well with those and we await their release. And I can't wait for, you know, whatever you put out next. But for now, retrospective is a staggering achievement. Many, many congratulations. Juan Gabriel Vasquez, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. For me too. For me too. Thank you very much, Mark. It has been a pleasure to talk to you and to be in the show. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Juan Gabriel Vasquez for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? To be frank... What haven't we learned? If you want to write about real-world events, don't feel constrained to writing within non-fiction. Novels can be a powerful way of portraying facts in a new light. As Juan says, novels can open a space in which opposing ideas are valid at the same time, where reality is considered in a complex way. We are constantly living in someone else's story. Those in power forge the narrative of the world around us. Use the novels you write and the stories you tell 
as a form of rebellion. Write stories that paint a picture of a world that represents you and your experiences more accurately. And finally, know when to leave yourself out of the story. Setting aside your own biases and experiences can open space for your readers to make up their own minds about the events that unfold, to understand them in their way, not yours. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated, and we'll put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.